All right, Gabe, should we get started? Let's get started. So we have today with us, it's a great honor uh, to have Sheila Robotham, who's a socialist feminist historian and the author of many books since the 1970s, uh, as well as a former student of Edward and Dorothy Thompson. And... No, no, that's not true. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I never <laughs> Somebody has written that somewhere, but it's not true. <laughs> I apologize. We'll talk about your relationship with them as we go. But anyway, welcome, Sheila. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, and we're, to begin, we were hoping to interview you first about your political trajectory. Um, I've just been rereading uh, from Beyond the Fragments and then moved toward the question of studying and writing history from there. And it struck me in revisiting Beyond the Fragments, uh, there was a quotation from the 1912 pamphlet, The Miner's Next Step. Yes, I and, really like that. Nor Applet. And uh, you, quoted it, you quoted it saying, sheep cannot be said to have solidarity. And that, that struck me as really embodying uh, much of the, of the principle of, of, of the larger document. I think it's how you com- combine individual freedom and expression and... Uh, development with the idea of changing the um, external oppressive structures. And there's a, there's a really great quote from uh, Winstanley, the 17th century um, revolutionary from the Puritan Revolution, who talks about the inner and outer bondages, which actually I think is, is really something that's very much part of... Um, Edward Thompson's politics, too. So, Sheila, you came into the left in the early 1960s in the environment of the disarmament campaign and the lingering aftermath of 1956. How did this shape your political development those years? It, it was um, a real, I think, it to be involved in a movement because CND had lots of different kinds of people in it. I mean, it used to have these very sort of solemn kind of uh, members of the National Union of Teachers who would have, they always had these long grey macs and they used to walk very solemnly and seemed incredibly old. And then there was uh, people in leather jackets and uh, people in jeans. And um, it was uh, a time when there was still a, a, a beatnik kind of counterculture in France. And um, then there would be um, trade union people who went. Actually, a trade union friend of mine at the time went, and it was trendy to have very pointed winkle picker shoes. <laughs> he went on the Aldermast and marched with his winkle picker shoes. <laughs> so there was a, there was just a, a great mixture of people, and the, the politics um, of it wasn't at all sectarian. There was uh, people who were Christian socialists, and there were anarchists, and um, there was a tradition of um, direct action through Committee of 100, a peaceful um, 
direct action that came through the Gandhian influence. So um, we did things like sitting down in protest. And um, on one occasion, we also marched to a regional seat of government on the off the old Marston March. So it had an idea that you were challenging um, democracy, the, the lack of democracy in the state, as at the same time as um, making a, mo- a moral protest. Uh, you write in in your description of those years that um, you could not understand how, I think you're referring specifically to New Left Review, how they could be socialists and not bother about being personally remote from working class people. I, I, I'm curious how you grappled yourself with the question of being a middle class socialist as you developed your political orientation. Yes, I think uh, I think it may have been because I came from a, a northern industrial city that I had that awareness. I mean, if people came um, from the south and particularly, you know, London, I, I think to pass media was quite acceptable. But my father's family had, they hadn't had, you know, and my mother's, they hadn't had a formal education. Um, my father was a, a mechanical and mining engineer and um, he'd um, gone up and down in life. So he'd <clears throat> worked in the mines when he um, couldn't get a job in the 30s and then um, become a salesman. And there wasn't a tradition of um, books and things in the, in the, in our home. We had um, various books that arrived there by chance because my father had gone to auctions and the books had come in lots. And I used to read those. And um, I had a really good history teacher at school who was a, a liberal. At that time, as I was growing up, there was such a strong emphasis on class around because of the the culture of the novels of the angry young men. There was a, a rebellious feeling that um, class was something that people were protesting about. So I think I picked that up before I ever had any idea of... Um, you know, left politics, really. It was part of just being against everything that seemed to have already existed. And for people who don't know, what was your relationship with the New Left Review milieu? When I was at university and we had um, a group called Universities and Left Review, and it was a, a, a more sort of fluid situation. My boyfriend then was called Bob Bothorn, and he was a, a close friend of Gareth Stedman Jones. So I met Gareth um, in my first year at university. Actually, I, I met Gareth <laughs> on a blind date. I got um, invited by a friend to meet some friend of somebody's. And uh, Gareth and I were, uh, met, and I was a, a not at all left wing, and he had been chalking against the Algerian war in the streets. It wasn't a very successful blind date because I was a sort of mystical, sort of beatniky hippie type person. And uh, uh, I said I'd been chalking in Paris, by which I meant that we'd chalked to get money, (laughs) whereas he'd chalked um, political slogans and he didn't really hit it off. So it wasn't until I met him again through Bob that I got to know Gareth. I knew Gareth, but he was a a student and a bit 
younger than um, Perry and the people who um, started the New Left Review. You know, I was struck um, in in rereading your writing um, about how you wrote about 1968, which, you know, in America and in Britain now, too, we're in a moment, obviously, of enormous upheaval and uprising and popular mobilization as we speak that's raised a set of questions, I think, about how to understand ourselves in relation to the late 1960s and the appropriateness and usefulness of the comparison and so on, which is so heavily shrouded in cliche and cant and a whole set of things like that. But I was hoping just to read uh, a couple of sentences that you wrote in Beyond the Fragments. Capitalism was seen as claiming your whole being. We were all colonized and had to become total resistors. The focus was not only on production or even on a wider concept of class struggle, but on oppression in everyday life, particularly the family and consumption. The revolution must liberate the imagination. So obviously this episode, this moment in the late 1960s has been talked and talked to death. It seems important to me to not let it become a reification or a cliche. And I'm just curious how you think back on that moment now for yourself and what is living in it for you and what, what seems dead or ossified. I don't know. I don't, know, I don't think I was brilliant at uh, resisting consumption because I, I always like buying clothes. <laughs> so I, I don't think I ever... Uh, gave up on 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 all aspects of the, that aspect of capitalism, but uh, I would identify with the with this feeling that the change you, that you want is is something to do with how people relate and see one another, as well as being about um, changing issues of external equality. So, Sheila, after a time as a Trotskyist in this, you describe yourself drawn emotionally towards libertarian socialism and women's liberation. I wasn't really a Trotskyist. I mean, I, I was the main influence really was not the, it wasn't Trotskyism, it wasn't the new left of the new left review really, although I knew my contemporaries, some of my contemporaries that I knew was when he was were connected to that, but I, I, it was really the the politics of the new left that I read from the, from the Reasoner and the new Reasoner that Dorothy and Edward had. I've always had friends who were in lots of different groups. So I developed an idea that, you know, that I'm friendly with people of different political persuasions. And I got that through participating in a movement in which there was this great mixture of people. There was a moral commitment and a commitment to living and working with working class people, which Dorothy and Edward did, and which, um, you know, a, a lot of my life has also been involved in um, living in working class areas and working with working class people. So I wanted to overcome those, those kinds of divisions, the class divisions between people from quite an early age. I. I sort of felt they were really pointless and stupid. And it, it seemed very obvious that uh, the, the inequalities affected people from being very young. And because I used to teach in school, so before I taught at Manchester University, and I could see the, the ways in which everything was against the um, working class girls and boys that I taught. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Dorothy and E.P. Thompson? Uh, yes. I, I met them when I was um, 
19 and uh, I met them because I had a tutor uh, who I'd been sent to because I was a bit of a problem at my Oxford College I think they sent me off as an experiment to a historian called Richard Cobb who um, has written a lot about the, the French Revolution and about the French Revolutionary Army anyway he said you should go and see these friends of mine Dorothy and Edward Thompson, who they live um, near Halifax and uh, uh, they write about things like chartism, they said. And so I rang them up and I was exceedingly nervous. And Edward um, uh, and Dorothy said that I should come and visit, so I did. So when I got to uh, the house, I didn't see Edward, I just saw Dorothy, who was in her thirties then and she was wearing this black polar neck jumper and black tights, which is very much at that time sort of what intellectual lefty women might wear and certainly not the people that my mother knew. They didn't know me or have any idea, you know, why I was there particularly, but they just welcomed me and um I I always used to visit them a lot and read everything in their study. So I did read the making of the English working class in proofs. And it was like no other history book I'd read. Um, I had read things like uh, Primitive Rebels, um, Eric Hobsbawm. So I'd read sort of some left history. And uh, but Edward's book was um, just completely extraordinary all these people and quite a lot of the places were places that I was familiar with because they're close to Leeds. You know it's it seems that you uh this book played or the social history sort of revolution played an important role in your own political development over the course of the 1960s and I'm curious how you understood the relationship between your evolving identity as a historian and a, a kind of professional scholar and your relationship to the radical movements of the day? Well, we used to go to a thing called Labour History Society. Um, it's a bit stuffy, Labour History Society, but it did have an alternative perspective on history so we got this idea that there could be a different kind of history. Um, and there were people questioning the scope of history in, in relation so to all the movements against colonialism were, um, challenge, were challenging the, the ideas of um, how history should be written. And the, uh, there's also because we were very influenced by all the civil rights and stuff in the States. We knew about the black movement in America and the struggle over over civil rights and then black power. So the idea that culture was was an area where you needed to contest how people were being defined was something that was um, in the air and and very important. So um, in... Uh, the late 60s when some of us started to talk about um, women's liberation that the idea of writing a a different kind of history seemed to 
make sense. And I'm sure that was because I'd known about the you know the challenge of labor history and then the the kind of Thompsonian influence on history, which was not just about the, the political structures that working class people created, but actually delved into to daily life and the experience of individual workers, as well as um, the fact that people were organizing in, in lots of different ways, not necessarily in a formal way to just get the vote, but to um, achieve things in in whatever way they could, whether it was through secret societies or um, crowd action or um, union organizing. You write about the late 60s, and this is describing yourself, I think. Uh, it's frightening to set off on new journeys without any maps. Perhaps the hardest bit is deciding what to hang on to and what to shed. There seemed to be an atmosphere which would annihilate history as if the past was too compromised to be acknowledged. And that strikes me as such a, uh, it's, it's a question that feels so familiar from the making itself and the characters in the 1790s. Uh, but I'm curious about, about how that set of questions took shape for you in the, as you developed, it seems, your, your own women's liberationist politics in this moment. I think I might have gone back to my... I had a teacher at school who was um, uh, a, a liberal and um, a Methodist, and she was very... I think she was really worried about that sort of absolutism that wants to get rid of everything. And so she used to... Um, in, in, I think she sensed that I was likely to become such a person... So she spent a lot of time getting me to read people like Burke and people who talked about some kind of organic um, interconnection through time with the past. And and so I think I, I've always had the two things. One, an attraction to the, you know, people with the banners and overturning everything and um, the world turned upside down, but also um, some kind of appreciation of... Um, continuity and um, links back to the past. One of the, the nice things is that Edward met um, a very old woman who uh, had actually sat on the knee of um, Orita Hunt, Henry Hunt, <laughs> the radical. And um, so I always feel very pleased because I can say, you know, I'm a woman who met a man who met a woman who met Henry Hunt. <laughs> And that takes you back into the to the early nineteenth century. I'm curious uh, to to ask you more about women's liberation politics in this period uh, and and what it meant to you. And again, there's a sort of long quotation that I'd like to read to to frame this. You wrote, "We have stressed, for instance, the closeness and protection of a small group and the feeling of sisterhood. Within the small group, it has been important that every woman has space and air for her feelings and ideas to grow." The assumption is that there is not a single correctness which can be learned off by heart and passed on by poking people with it. It is rather that we know our feelings and ideas move and transform themselves in relation to other women. We all need to express and contribute. Our views are valid because they come from within us and not because we hold a received correctness. The words we use seek an openness and honesty about our own interest in what we say. This is the opposite to most left language, which is constantly distinguishing itself as correct and then covering itself with a determined objectivity. That feels like a very live uh, dynamic to me. 
uh, I recognize in some ways what you're saying there, although obviously not not all respects. Um, but I'm curious what what in your own experience you were describing and what kinds of political practice this insight gave rise to for you. I am. Um, we, 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 we've had, there was this thing called consciousness raising from uh, uh, America. And years later, I did meet Kathy and Matnik, who's meant to have invented it. And um, we did try and do it, although we didn't always do it. We, we used to worry that we didn't do it as purely as we felt that perhaps in America they were all doing it. Um, because, uh, I don't know, sort of, there was a, still a feeling that perhaps we ought to go off and organize and give out leaflets and try to involve more working class women and reach out to people. We did, um, so we did have groups that spoke about all our feelings. Um, and, the, I mean, those meetings um, were were really strengthening because I think one of the things that happened at that time was that we'd been brought up in the 50s in a time when um, women didn't really feel much connection to each other. We were brought up to compete and, um, you know, be attractive to guys. And uh, if we were attracted to men, that was what we were meant to be doing. And, um, if you were a person who was questioning that as a woman, you often gravitated to, to being with, with men more when I was a student. Uh, so the people I knew who I discussed ideas with would be men. And I always, always have a few women friends who were people who kind of crossed over and were interested in ideas as well. And it really changed in the, uh, with the development of my dress book, which had been a lot of guys who were friends and um, a few women became, you know, less men and more more and more women who would, became really close friends. So it became a way of understanding more about women who weren't necessarily completely the same as yourself. And it was quite often slightly random who you ended up in a consciousness raising group with. But because we had talked personally, it enabled you to understand where, you know, where people were coming from. You had background to understand why they might take a particular position. I think one of the rather agonizing things about that form of politics, which was a bit of a problem, was that it didn't always necessarily work, but you felt equally friendly with everybody in the group. And so there was a kind of hidden tension around the fact that perhaps there were inequalities of friendship, but the, the, the friendships that have persisted from that, from that politics are still going. I mean, we're in our 70s and we, we're still in regular contact with a lot of people who um, we we knew from from the women's movement. It was something that was more than just the moment of um, discovering women, the, the emergence of the women's movement. It's carried on over time. There have obviously been a fair number of feminist critics of the brand of social humanist history popularized by Thompson. Um, have you thought about this for yourself and tried to address it in your own work? 
No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) You you mean because there there was not a great deal of reference to women in the making of the English working class? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there wasn't. But to me, it seems that there was a lot of references at the time to women because, um, I mean, you know, we had to read people like J.H. Plum and um, a a, a history in which there really was absolutely no women at all. And the fact that there were some in the making of the English working class did arrest my attention. Um, I think there's a bit of a, um, a tendency for Edward to feel that women was something that he, you know, he didn't want to write about because he knew that Dorothy was interested in women as well as in the politics of Chartism. And so there was a bit of a feeling that he didn't want to take over Dorothy's area, actually, because it wasn't that he wasn't aware or interested in um, the position of women. And they had... Had I mean they didn't uh, they didn't particularly like women's liberation. They thought we were too middle class. They thought we were indulgent for talking about our vaginas and sex lives, and, and they thought we were incredibly privileged because they'd been through the war, and we we had so many choices. That's what Edward felt. He thought, you know, we, why why on earth is there this movement of young women. And then after they went to India in the mid-70s, they began to shift um, in in relation to, to women's liberation. But they didn't, I mean, they never stopped being friendly with me or with other people like Sally Alexander or Catherine Hall. There was no way in which they were hostile to, to, to feminism. They were hostile to what they saw as a certain, you know, actually rather old sort of style of communist suspicion of uh, feminism, really. They were for the emancipation of women, but they were very concerned that an exclusively middle-class approach didn't dominate because they felt that, and particularly this was Dorothy's view, that working-class women valued things like the family because the family was their place where they got a lot of support. And um, kinship and net, uh, net immediate networks for women was, was a source of support and power. And they were very suspicious of the sort of abolish the family stuff that um, our generation were affected by. You said that their politics started to shift after they went to India. Can you talk about how they shifted? Oh, yes. Yes, they did. They met a lot of Indian socialist feminists who had been um, involved in uh, the resistance to the clampdown um, uh, in in India with um, Mrs. Gandhi. So, and it was through through them that I met uh, Radha Kumar, who was a socialist feminist, who was a a friend of theirs. So that they and because of their connection, Edward's connection through his family to India, the links to the Indian left is, is was so strong for Edward. So I sort of inherited through them many friends, including Radha Kumar. And in Britain, um, I got to know a, a clothing worker called Gertie Roche, who 
They knew through, she'd been in the Communist Party and left in 56. In fact, they always said that it was interesting how the people who were remembered to have left in 56 were all the middle class intellectuals like themselves. But actually, in Yorkshire, there was a, a lot of trade, working class trade union people who also left the, the Communists in 56, including this wonderful woman, Gertie Roche, who carried on being involved in um, women's liberation. It was quite, quite funny, actually, because I can remember going to a meeting. Um, this would be early 70s, indeed. She um, was there, and communist women came. And, of course, the division had been so bitter and deep that they never spoken since the time when they, um, uh, she'd left the CP and they'd carried on. And in a way, I think that the, the women's movement brought, brought these different lots of older women um, a bit together again because um, they found themselves in the same meetings again. There's another interesting connection with Gertie Roche that Gertie gave to me um, the journal of Claudia Jones, the, uh, who'd been, had to leave America because of... Um, the um, McCarthy witch hunt, and she she came uh, and was in was in London, and she started uh, a, a magazine. And Gertie gave me these copies of this magazine that uh, Claudia Jones had given her. And those you know those sort of connections between somebody like Claudia Jones and the trade union woman in Leeds is not the the kind of links that people normally pick up on, but that, I think that's interesting. Yeah, Claudia Jones, I think, is someone who many of our listeners will be familiar with, but uh, would not necessarily have a sense of those of those connections that, that she might have had. Yes, but it's because it's people always are connected on the left like that, I think, and and yet each time it gets forgotten, those inter, interconnections. A few minutes ago, you were describing the... Skepticism maybe is too strong a word, but the ways in which Dorothy and Edward um, held themselves at some remove from the feminist politics of your generation. And it seems to me that some of your historical work may, would you say it was addressed in some way to trying to work out those dilemmas or those separations? (laughs) I don't know. They didn't like women resistance and revolution. They thought that I was sort of marching along to a prearranged goal, which was, the, you know, and in a way it was true. I was thinking, oh, we're, you know, we've suddenly seen the light and we've solved everything as we've created the women's liberation movement. And I started it in 69 when the very first groups were emerging in Britain. And it was, um, so there is a sort of sense that we're going somewhere the, 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 all these other revolutionary movements have failed, but there's something that we're heading off to that's going to solve everything. And they were really annoyed about that because they felt that it was, the, again, this sort of um, thing in Marxism that they didn't like, which is the sort of Edward's, um, the homing, the, know, the, the knowing all sort of homing pigeon that always knows where, um, what the answer is, where it's going. And I didn't. I didn't know that. I was incredibly upset that they didn't like it. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, is 
that late, the bits that Edward liked were the bits that probably were even less detailed in the, his, the history. The bits that he didn't like was was the history. And the stuff about China and Russia is probably, you know, because it was only from secondary sources, difficult often to find out information at that time. I did get more detailed as I became more elderly. And less people read the books. Lots of people read Women, Resistance and Revolution. It went into lots of different languages. But they did like Hidden from History, which I wrote because um, I was teaching women in uh, adult classes in the Workers' Education Association, and they didn't like uh, the long chapters in Women, Resistance and Revolution. So I wrote it with lots of short chapters, which all sorts of people have liked since, and it's meant that it's gone into schools quite a lot. I also wanted to ask you about Black Dwarf, um, which you were a, a key figure in, as I understand. And oh, yeah. Could I, could I just say that Edward sent me this uh, nicest book when I was doing Hidden from History. Um, well, he, did, he actually sent me the manuscript of uh, uh, Mary Collier's The Woman's Labour. Um, it's a, a poem by an 18th century washerwoman. And... Uh, uh, it's uh, an answer to a guy called Stephen Duck who wrote about how women prattled and gossiped while they were meant to be working and she shows how they were doing the work for the mistress in the house and also in the big house and they were also doing their own housework and they were working in the fields as well and she was doing this washing. So it's a, it's a great um, description of... Uh, women's work at that time. Black Dwarf was um, uh, through Tarek. I had been at university with Tarek Ali and uh, uh, we stayed friendly after he left and I left and he introduced me to Clive Goodwin. Actually, at a meeting of uh, the May Day Manifesto group, which Edward and Dorothy were connected to. I used to sell Black Dwarf initially for quite a long time, and then eventually I got put onto the editorial board. I don't think Edward liked that very much either, actually. Um, they thought it was too kind of um, London-y and revolutionary sort of show-off stuff, I think. Um, the thing that he he and Dorothy did, were quite sympathetic to was much later when I was doing a, a thing called Jobs for a Change because I worked for the Greater London Council when Ken, Ken Livingstone and um, John McDonnell was there. <laughs> I was in a, a thing called Popular Planning Unit with Hilary Rainwright. Um, there were lots of uh, attempts to try and think through how do you ground ideas of an, an alternative economic strategy and, and how do you democratize the process of planning and making uh, an alternative socialist economics? So those two were connected, really. We're interviewing John McDonnell in a couple of weeks, actually. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be nice to ask him from his perspective about that, that episode. Yeah, he wouldn't know me because I was just a member of the popular planning unit that Hilary Wainwright headed. And we didn't have that much contact with the, with the members. I knew 
um, Mike Ward and I knew Ken, Ken Livingstone, but I didn't really. I only went to a meeting once with John McDonald. Well, to conclude, I'm curious how you, what you think of as the kind of main lessons you learned from those years. We talked a fair amount about the late 60s, but, you know, to, to move forward in time. Uh, I guess keep on keeping on, which <laughs> we had, I think, uh, from the, the late six, I mean, I happened to get involved in the left at a rather downtime, so I didn't have very strong expectations. You know, you'd go to the Labour Party, we were in the Labour Party Young Socialist, and we used to go leafleting, and very few people would come to our meetings as a result of giving out leaflets. But then suddenly there was this great zoom up of um, militancy and excitement, and lots of people were involved in demonstrations in their late 60s. And so um, I think that carried, that impetus carried on certainly into, into the 70s. And even in the early 80s, there was a lot of resistance to Margaret Thatcher in the first few years. Um, and it wasn't really until the abolition of the GLC in 86, uh, that um, uh, sort of rather gloomy <laughs> realisation came upon us that perhaps things weren't going to happen as quickly as we'd thought. So I I think um, there's been an awful lot of decades since then. I mean, this is really difficult being older because you end up thinking, oh, you know, all that time is gone, and yet um, there's so much effort we put in, and yet we didn't actually affect that significant change. I mean, some changes occurred, but they were almost not not ones that we were thinking about sometimes, you know. I mean, I think that changes that were really important have been more to do with um, culture and and attitudes, but not significant changes in terms of um, inequality. That certainly seems true in the United States as well. But I think, you know, we could take from, if we take anything from the making of the English working class, it's that people's movements never, even in defeat, never go away. That's they, absolutely true. Yeah. I, I began by asking you, by or earlier, I, I raised the comparison with the late 1960s because it's so, it's, like I say, it's so present in this moment in the U.S. where there's massive mobilization in the streets and I do, that's part of why, speaking for myself, I wanted to do this podcast and these interviews with figures like you, yourself, because um, I think that we're still very much in, in the process of figuring out how to use the legacies of the new left and what what of those legacies live on as part of our repertoire today. Yes. Uh, well, I think we are out of questions, Sheila. Uh, it's really one. It's been really wonderful to talk to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it really, it means it means a lot. Well, I'm sorry because I'm not very good at talking. I find it much easier to write, and um, I mean, I can give talks because I have the notes, <laughs> but I, I'm not very good at talking, and so it may not be very clear. I think you were great. Yeah, I think our our listeners will really enjoy it, and it will mean a lot. I, I, it's so good that you're there, both of you, and the, and the Jacobin and things. Um, it, it would be so terrible if you weren't.
I think we feel the same about about the figures like you, you know, who I think of as real icons and leaders and inspirations of, of the older generation. We would be lost without it. And if you ever come to England, do get in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again. And thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. So let's, let's move on to the chapters of the book from this week. Okay. So chapters 12 and 13. So chapter 12, community, um, opens with children being disciplined once again and told that they are fallen creatures um, or something of that sort. Yes. Corrupt nature is an evil disposition. So we're still in uh, Methodist revivalism and uh, general work discipline. Yeah, it seems like Thompson here, I found this chapter somewhat harder to grasp exactly what Thompson was trying to say, actually, as opposed to most chapters, which have a very clear self-contained argument. Uh, But it seems like one of the things he's after is kind of the contradictions or, I don't know, different valences of working class discipline, right? And how discipline is both this thing that uh, the authorities through religion, through work discipline impose, but also um, discipline is kind of a dimension of working class organization and culture in another way. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, he describes how these organizations of working class people start becoming almost, yeah, I mean, disciplined in a sense. There's a lot of mention of how in the past, maybe a gathering of 100,000 people would have been a riot, whereas here it's more an organizational sort of conversation. Um, There's talks about all the rituals of meetings, things like that. Um, that are not the repressive kind of discipline that was covered in other chapters, but rather sort of coming organically from the class itself. Yeah, right. And he's trying to work out, I think, a tension that exists in his own way of thinking and arguing about history. Um, Because, you know, obviously he's set up the kind of uh, communal or customary tradition, the body of customary tradition as a sort of resource, a cultural resource upon which the working class draws to navigate collectively the experience of industrialization. And there are dimensions of this that he thinks are kind of good and dimensions that he thinks are kind of, you know, it's more complicated. Um, On page 410, 411, there's a passage I wanted to read. While many contemporary writers from Cobbett to Engels lamented the passing of old English customs, it is foolish to see the matter only in idyllic terms. And here I think Thompson is sort of responding preemptively to a criticism that he knows will be made of him, right? Because he is he does so much work to show, not idealize, but to kind of show the positive force of these, of these customs. But he says, these customs were not all harmless or quaint. In the first decades of the 19th century, cases of wife selling were reported from places as widely scattered as Colne, Plymouth, Sheffield, and Smithfield Market. Indeed, where the wife admitted that she had been unfaithful, this was held in folklore to be the husband's right. Many people in the country said one husband who had offered his wife in the Plymouth cattle market, told him he could do it. The unmarried mother, punished in a bridewell and perhaps repudiated by the parish in which she was entitled to relief, had little reason to admire Merry England, that being the term for the kind of old way of life. The passing of Gin Lane, Tyburn Fair, orgiastic drunkenness, animal sexuality, and mortal combat for prize money in iron-studded clogs calls for no lament. However repressive and disabling the work discipline of Methodism, the Industrial Revolution could not have taken place without some work discipline, and in whatever form, the conflict between old and new ways 
most inevitably have been painful. Okay, though it's worth pointing out that in the wife-selling passage in the footnote there, he also writes the following. Several of the cases suggest that the practice was not always barbarous, but could be a popular form of divorce with the consent of the wife. She was, quote, purchased for a token sum by her lover, and the transaction in the open market legitimized the exchange in popular lore. No other form of divorce was available. Sorry, I found this fascinating. Yeah, there's, I think there's a whole literature on wife selling, actually, which I only know in passing. But, okay. Uh, it's, this is one of the things that he goes on to explore more later, I think. Sure. So Thompson in this chapter is not idealizing all of the things that are lost. Sure. Um, I think, he, I mean, he's often arguing with himself in these cha- in this book. So this is another one of those chapters. Yeah. Um, and, you know, arguing with, I think, what is an inherent or is a, is a contradiction as old as capitalism itself in, in critiques of it, right? Which is about how to understand the ways that it's loosening old forms or existing forms of um domination while also generating new kinds of discipline and domination. And uh, yeah, I think he's just kind of trying to parse some of that out on empirical ground here. Um, on 414, he's doing this too. Um, he writes, it is here that it is most difficult to draw a balance. On the one hand, the claim that the industrial revolution raised the status of women would seem to have little meaning when set beside the record of excessive hours of labor, cramped housing, excessive childbearing, and terrifying rates of child mortality. On the other hand, the abundant opportunities for female employment in the textile districts gave to women the status of independent wage earners. The spinster or the widow was freed from dependence upon relatives or upon parish relief. Even the unmarried mother might be able, through the laxness of moral discipline in many mills, to achieve an independence unknown before. In the largest silk mills in Macclesfield, righteous employers prided themselves upon dismissing girls who made a single false step. A witness who contrasted this with the easier-going manners of Manchester came up with observations disturbing to the moralist. I find it very generally the case that where mills and factories are nearly free from mothers of illegitimate children, there the streets are infested with prostitutes. And on the contrary, where the girls are permitted to return to their work after giving birth to a child, there the streets are kept comparatively clear of those unhappy beings. The period reveals many such paradoxes. Right. And on the following page, he's talking about textile workers, and he says the same thing, that it sort of gave rise to this greater participation in politics and social agitation among women. Um, and yet also, the, now we have women more dependent on the market, more dependent on employers. Um, so they're free of certain things, but they're also now um, under the discipline of work. I think he says this actually on 416. He says the new independence in the mill or full time at the loom, which made new claims possible, was felt simultaneously as a loss in status and in personal independence. Women became more dependent upon the employer or labor market. And they look back to the, quote, golden past in which home earnings from spinning poultry and the like could be gained around their own door. So actually, here is a a rare section where Thompson is fully engaging with how this um, period that he's studying actually affected women. Yeah. um, To Sheila's point, Um, it's not completely absent from the book. And, you know, he obviously, um, as we were saying a moment ago, there's a dimension of um, forms of collective discipline and kind of which are based in these kinds of, uh, you know, potentially conser- partly conservative moralities, right, that he is in favor of or defensive of. Uh, on 424, he writes, by the early years of the 19th century, it is possible to say that collectivist values are dominant 
in many industrial communities. There is a definite moral code with sanctions against the black leg, that's a scab, the tools of the employer, the unneighborly, and with an intolerance toward the eccentric or individualist. Collectivist values are consciously held and are propagated in political theory, trade union ceremonial, moral rhetoric. It is indeed this collective self-consciousness with its corresponding theory, institutions, discipline, and community values, which distinguishes the 19th century working class from the 18th century mob. I just want to add here, um, and I hope I'm not completely fabricating this, but uh, I remember reading an article in the last couple of years about a a mining town in the north of England somewhere uh, where there was a coal, a miner strike, you know, distant yeah, early 19th century, long, long time ago, uh, which was broken by by blacklegs brought from the South. And the community so completely and effectively ostracized them that they remain today a genetically distinct population <laughs> because it was, nobody would intermarry wow. with them down to, down to the presence. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think actually kind of illustrates in a powerful way what he's talking about here, if it's true. I apologize if I have embellished that in some way in my memory. I did did not reread that that study before (laughs) this interview. Right. So on this same page on 424, he says, This growth in self-respect and political consciousness was one real gain of the Industrial Revolution. And on, on 426, he also says, the passage from the old outlook of, quote, the trade to the duality of the master's organizations on the one hand and the trade unions on the other takes us into the central experience of the Industrial Revolution. So we're really talking here about the reshaping of pol- forms of political consciousness it's themselves. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, this is I feel like this is kind of he's doing a lot of summing up of the whole book up to this point and setting up the century ahead. In this chapter. Sure. There's a lot of discussion of the Irish also, which I found interesting. It was like the lengthiest discussion of the Irish presence that we've yet gotten. Yeah. I mean, it's the only time in the book so far that the Irish get an actual section beyond the little bit of discussion of an uprising that happened early in the book. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's basically, I think, you know, American readers actually have a, probably in some ways easier time making sense of or understanding what's being described here um, because it's a kind of somewhat race-like De- development in terms of labor market stratification. Um, at the bottom of 434, he says, thus to an extraordinary degree, the employers had the best of a labor supply <clears throat> from the pre-industrial and the industrialized worlds. The disciplined worker at heart disliked his work. The same character structure which made for application and skill erected also barriers of self-respect which were not amenable to dirtier degrading tasks. A building employer explaining why the Irish were confined to laboring roles gave evidence. Quote, they scarcely ever make good mechanics. They don't look deep into subjects. Their knowledge is quick but superficial. They don't make good millwrights or engineers or anything which requires thought. If a plan is put in an Irishman's hand, he requires looking after continuously, otherwise he will go wrong or more probably not go on at all. This was a consequence of want of application rather than any natural incapacity. It was a moral and not an intellectual defect. Uh, So he kind of goes on like this to argue that there's a kind of influx of the Irish into the bottom of the labor market. Um which benefits employers in a variety of ways. The Irish, um, you know, have their own patterns of kind of collective action and resistance, which in some ways are kind of more militant. Um, They get very militant. Yeah. He describes various sort of examples of the Irish community. He's describing the fact at points that 
Irishmen will fight with each other, but as soon as there's a threat from outside, all of a sudden the entire community is backing the community member against any kind of repression, um, particularly from the English, but from just about anyone. And from the cops. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) On on 436, I love this passage, uh, he quotes the superintendent of the Manchester Watch, who says... In order to apprehend one Irishman in the Irish parts of town, we are forced to take from 10 or 20 or even more watchmen. The whole neighborhood turns out with weapons, even women half-naked, carrying brickbats and stones for the men to throw. A man will resist fighting and struggling in order to gain time till his friends collect for a rescue. And right before that part you read is another quote from the deputy constable of Manchester, In 1836, he says, It's extremely dangerous to execute a warrant in a factory where many Irish are employed. They will throw bats and stones on the officers' heads as they are coming upstairs. (laughs) Pretty intense. Yeah, well, you know, it it feels uh, resonant right now. Well, yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, I mean, part of why he's focusing on the Irish, he writes on 441, there's a clear consecutive alliance between Irish nationalism and English radicalism between 1790 and 1850, at times enlivened and confused by the fortunes of the O'Connor family. Then he writes later on, For more than 20 years after 1798, one Irish county after another was swept by agrarian disturbances in which secret societies employed different forms of terrorism to defend tenant rights, hold down rents and prices, resist tithes, or drive out English landlords. Is there anything else to sum up this chapter? No. I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, yeah, me neither. It was sort of a meandering chapter. You know, at the end, Thompson kind of seems to say, uh, right, that there is this kind of uh, ugliness or moral catastrophe that overtakes the working class, that come, you know, but that it's, as he says on 446 at the end, it's violence done to human nature, um, and against which efforts to kind of reconstitute, reorganize uh, working class communities need to be acknowledged. I'm not sure that I would gloss the evidence here in the same way, but I think that, you know, it is powerful. Like, I mean, the human nature thing, as we've talked about before, is challenging. But, you know, anyway, I think it's still kind of powerful. The basic point of, like, uh, the emergence of a kind of polarized class consciousness and class structure and the ways that that reorganizes working class collective identity, I, I, I think is powerful here. Mm-hmm. Okay, should we go into chapter 13? Sure, yeah. Part three, the final part. Yeah. This this chapter is like the electoralist, Thompson. Right, yeah. (laughs) Class struggle elections. (laughs) And it's very short, so that makes sense to me. Yeah. (laughs) So radical Westminster, huh? Yeah, so, you know, I'll say when I kind of turned the page onto this chapter and saw that title, I thought it was going to be about the radical presence, like, in Parliament, which it is somewhat, but he's actually talking more about radical organizing in the constituency of Westminster, like the neighborhood where the Houses of Parliament sit. Yeah, sort of misleading as a title because I thought the same thing. Yeah, he's talking about like the birth of an electoral machine of canvassing and strategy um, to get radicals elected. Yeah, I mean, that was cool to see. Um, You know, I mean, essentially modern like, you know, list-making, canvassing type. Yeah. I mean, things that I've done and you've done and we recognize. So he's at pains to point out here, here's how the chapter starts. Popular radicalism was not extinguished when the corresponding societies were broken up, habeas corpus suspended, and all, quote, Jacobin manifestations outlawed. It simply lost coherence. 
For years, it was made inarticulate by censorship and intimidation. It lost its press. It lost its organized expression. It lost its own sense of direction. But it is there as a palpable presence throughout the wars. It is scarcely possible to give a coherent historical account of an incoherent presence, but some attempt must be made. Um, so he's trying to point out that this repression has absolutely scattered the movement, and yet it obviously remains. Right, and we we might even suggest that that might be why it flows into this kind of electoral form in particular. Could suggest that. I mean, one thing I thought was interesting here was how the counter-revolution in France, in the form of Napoleon, um, deprives the British working class of this kind of international solidarity that it's it's had. And this felt to me... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I read this and started thinking about, you know, the kind of failure of the Soviet project and its, its meaning for the domestic, uh, you know, socialist and communist movements in the West. Can you spell out what we were thinking, the comparison? Yeah. I mean, it's not a fully fledged comparison. I'll try. Um, you know, but I mean, Thompson basically says, okay, so, you know, after Bonaparte's, uh, you know, crowned emperor and the kind of Jacobin enthusiasm no longer has the, the kind, that kind of international comparison and solidarity to make, which as we saw earlier, right? I mean, there were moments where there are British radicals who are calling for a French invasion, right? But that, that, that doesn't make sense anymore past 1804. And, you know, that kind of, on one hand leads to some British pro radical pro-war sentiment and kind of, or at least kind of more torturedness around the war, which feels similar to the trajectory of various kinds of anti-Stalinist left formations in, in Britain and the United States and so on around, um, you know, military entanglements, right? Um, I mean, you you know, the, the trajectory by which you get like Max Schachtman supporting the war in Vietnam and this kind of thing, right? Um, and... Uh, right, the way in which it, this interplays with um, electoral organizing becoming, at least as this chapter suggests, the kind of main arena feels, uh, you know, we could analogize it to like Euro-communism or something like this, right? The, the movement toward a kind of uh, Moscow-free uh, or relatively more so, kind of Western, uh, more electoral and arguably reformist formation in France and Italy and so on. Right. And just to make this explicit on 454, he writes, this appeared to many reformers as a different kind of war. In 1802, Napoleon had become first consul for life. In 1804, he accepted the crown as hereditary emperor. No true follower of pain could stomach this. The hardened Jacobin was cut as deeply by this as more moderate reformers had been dismayed by Robespierre. However much they had sought to maintain a critical detachment, the morale of English reformers was closely involved with the fortunes of France. The First Empire struck a blow at English republicanism from which it never fully recovered. I mean, it's hard not to think he's talking about 1956 here. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right there is where the comparison seems very obvious. Of yeah. It struck a blow harder for the radical than for, you know, yeah. Yeah, which I think bespeaks, you know, I th like that is a, not a criticism of, the, of what he's doing. I think like that is how history should be written, you know? Yes, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, there's, there's, a kind of, there's an optimistic note of some degree in this chapter, right, which is that there 
they're able, um, the radicals in Westminster are able to kind of actually, in the teeth of this, build a kind of electoral base. And, you know, they lose a bunch, but they sometimes win. And they, um, you know, they actually kind of organize the community in which the Houses of Parliament sit to some degree. There is evidence of the first serious attempts at democratic electoral organization among the artisans and journeymen, he writes on 462. Parish committees for canvassing and organized support among the trades clubs of journeymen, shoemakers, printers, and tailors. Night after night, the crowd drew, drew Paul in triumph through the streets. Paul being a very odd character. I didn't know anything about him. Very winning, I found. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Right. He challenges um, his fellow candidate, right, to a duel, Burdett, who was on his side, right? Yeah, I think that's right. On 463 at the bottom of the page, um, he says, Thompson writes, Burdett seemed to have wished to shake off his plebeian fellow candidate, whereupon the, quote, Gamecock, which is how uh, Paul was referred to, flew into a rage and challenged Burdett to a duel in which both were wounded. Paul so seriously that his supporters dropped his candidature. So he's like this fiery, um, self-made kind of man um, who comes very close to winning, um, but ultimately ends up having this really downward trajectory um, and kills himself the next year after this duel. It does seem like an important part of this is just that Westminster actually just is a constituency where you can actually have a somewhat more democratic, ele- which is a more democratic election, which is not true of many constituencies in the country. Right. And this too, I felt like, you know, I, um, I mean, reading this and, you know, thinking about the constraints on and possibilities for left-wing electoral politics in the present, um, you know, I just spent the last few months phone banking uh, a lot for Nikhil Saval, who just ousted incumbent state senator in Philadelphia, thinking about the people, you know, in our in our world who are engaged in trying to identify, you know, what are the districts, what levels of government, what parts of what cities, where you can potentially do this kind of thing, what would be involved in it. I mean, Nikhil first ran for the co-chair of the Democratic Ward Committee for his district in Philadelphia, or his ward in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, obviously it's not the, exactly the same situation where you literally have different degrees of franchise and whatever, um, as in England in, in the beginning of the 19th century. But it is still, I think, fair to say it's basically the case, right, that, like, our uneven and extremely partial democracy um, affords geographically uneven political opportunity. And the idea of kind of, you know, essentially symbolic campaigning and victory, I mean, that like that that is what has been so significant about AOC winning, right? It's not like her vote in Congress. It's what she symbolizes because she happens to live in and represent a place where a breakthrough was possible. So that was sort of the, the light in which I, I read this chapter also. And, you know, I mean, I think that leads to uneven kinds of political outcomes or political formation within radicalism, too. On 471, Thompson writes, Hence it was that the radical movement took markedly different form in the Midlands and Industrial North, a difference which was to influence events for half a century. In London, the channels between middle class and working class performers remained open. The characteristic form of organization was the committee, in which a few professional men worked alongside self-educated artisans, who tended to despise the political backwardness of the laborers and the demoralized and criminal poor. As repression relaxed, 
the Forum Debating Society and Discussion Group revived. Periodical Westminster elections provided at least a safety valve and a sanction for tumults. In the Midlands and the North, radicalism was driven underground into the world of the illegal trade union. It became associated with industrial grievances, the secret meeting, and the oath. Until 1815, neither Burdett nor Cobbett meant much in the heartlands of the Industrial Revolution. The Westminster Committee had no message for the Luddites. North of the Trent, we find the illegal tradition. Right. It certainly makes me think of uneven political development of this country as far as the geography of radicalism. I mean, organizing in the Deep South is very different than what organizing in New York City looks like, For ex- to name one obvious example. Do you have anything else to say about this chapter? No, I don't think so. No. So for next week, we're going to read all of chapter 14, um, which is something like 130 pages long. Uh, I would like to apologize to those reading along, but um, we can't do half a chapter, so I think we're going to do the whole thing. Um, But I just wanted to make sure we say that on air. Um, And uh, thank you for listening. Bye, Alex. Bye. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. 